Philippians. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of having your sufficient word to instruct us, to guide us, to change us as your indwelling spirit ministers to us through the word that he inspired. May we be changed today as we consider your word. May we think like you think. May our minds be renewed in light of scripture. And may you be glorified through the teaching of your word today, we pray. Amen. Okay, well, last week we pretty much finished off the book of Philippians. We've been in it for many, many, many months. We took a long time over certain sections and we've worked our way through. And now as we come to the end of the year, we've completed the book of Philippians. Uh, I'll talk more at the business meeting for those of you who come along. But we're going to do a brief series on uh, progressive revelation just for four weeks, um, five weeks rather, uh, at the beginning of the new year, which is partly there because it's a good study for, a good topical study for you to, uh, to see some important truths of scripture, to be in the old and in the new, see how they link together. Uh, but also, behind the scenes, it gives me a little bit of time uh, to prepare for our next book. So once we've got that five-week topical out the way, we're going to be starting the book of Hebrews in the new year. Don't expect to be doing anything else on Sunday mornings for the rest of 2018. In fact, it, probably most of the following year as well, it's going to take some time to go through Hebrews. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a challenge for me, and I hope it'll be good uh, for you guys too. Um, so with that all said, the next couple of weeks we'll be doing some Christmassy uh, sermons as we come into the Christmas season. But what has become my habit and my practice over the years is a lot of people will, will, will start a book of the Bible and they'll start with a big introduction. And the problem I have with that is, of course, you haven't studied the books, book in depth, and so your introductory stuff is always relying on what other people have said and what have you. What I find far more edifying is to complete a book, and then when we've completed it, take a step back and have a look at it as a whole. Then if you guys, if some of you have missed a few weeks, you can fill in the gaps. For those of you who've been consistently here, then you can see how this whole thing unfolds together. So normally we, we go through a few verses and we take our time, but this morning we're going to look at the overview. We're going to look at the entire book of Philippians. So I better stop my introduction and get on with it, because we've got four chapters to do in one sermon. So let's... Uh, Let's look at chapter 1 then. So when we come to Philippians, we're, we're looking at a book that was written to a community. When we started our studies, we spent some time in Acts chapter 16. We saw how the church at Philippi was first planted. What was interesting about Paul and his model is that Paul believed um, that the gospel was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So when he went evangelizing and he went to take the gospel to a new area, he would always go to the synagogue first. He goes to the synagogue and preach to the Jews, and then, you know, even as the apostle to the Gentiles, he would preach to the Jews first, and then the gospel would go out from there to the Gentiles. 
And when we come to Philippi, it was such a Gentile community. We have in the last couple of verses references to Caesar's household and the Praetorium uh, Guard are mentioned in the letter as well. It's such, a, it's such a Roman setup. It's such a Gentile place that there weren't enough Jews for there to be a synagogue in Philippi. And when that was the case, those who uh, wanted to worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the, the, God, the uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if somebody wanted to worship the true God, then they would meet at the riverbank. That would be just a known cultural practice. So that if there was no synagogue, you knew where to go to go and worship with uh, your fellow believers. And so Paul, in Acts chapter 16, heads down to the riverbank, and there's very few people there. And interestingly enough, one of the key people there wasn't even a Jew. It was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism, had recognized it was the true God and, and had come to worship him, but wasn't even a Jew themselves. And that was Lydia. And Lydia was really very much at the center of the church plant uh, at Philippi. And so right from the very beginning, this was a very, very Gentile church. So Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, this is something he took great uh, joy and delight in as he ministered to them. And what we see as soon as we get into the letter is after the initial introduction, we see as we kick off in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, that's Acts 16, until now. And so initially, he kicks off and he immediately speaks of a joy he has for them, his thankfulness for them. And these aren't unusual terms, but they become quite repetitive in Philippians. Thankfulness, joy, delight. And what becomes very clear throughout the book is that Paul has a relationship with the church at Philippi that seems to be a tighter relationship, a more affectionate relationship than in almost any other congregation he was with. And it is, it is abundantly clear the love that he has for them. And it just shines through the letter as we go through. And he talks about God completing the work that he has begun in them. Um, and he says in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way, literally to think this way. What he's saying is, I've got this love for you, I've got this affection for you, and it's right that my mind is working in this way. Now that's the first mention in the book of the key word. For us to understand Philippians, we've got to see this word in the book. When he says it's right that I feel this way, he's literally saying it's right that I think this way. And this word think, or the related cognate word mind, the think and the mind, this word group is central to Philippians. Philippians as a book hinges on us understanding that Paul is talking about how we think. How we think. And so that's the first mention of it. And so he says, I'm thinking of you in this way, and this is right that I do so. And he talks about them and what they've accomplished for the gospel, the love that he has for them, and he continues to pray for them. Note verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now those of us who have been you know, here going through from the beginning when I came, I've taught through Ephesians, I've taught through Colossians, and now we're, and Philemon, and now we're finishing off the, the, the prison epistles as they're called with Philippians. And consistently, 
consistently through these books, we've seen one doctrine just come up again and again and again, and that is that Christian maturity comes through knowledge, discernment, wisdom, revelation, these types of words. There isn't any concept in Paul's mind of Christians growing through emotion, through experience. What happens is, is that Christians understand Jesus better, see him more clearly, and seeing him changes us. That's just a constant. We saw it very, very clearly laid out for us in the book of Ephesians, see it repeated in Colossians, and here it is again. So when he's praying for them to increase in love, he doesn't say, oh, have lovely feelings. He says, your knowledge needs to change, and that will make your love abound. And this is something that you guys know I have a fundamental objection with in much of the church today. That Christian churches today are so desperate to be relevant that everything has to be applicable in the most magazine-style way. You know, sermons, five steps to this, and seven ways to do that, and ten ways not to do this. And it's just completely contrary to Paul's mindset. Paul's mindset was simply this. Jesus is in you and Jesus changes you. Gaze upon him and as you see him more clearly, you will be transformed. And so we look at Christ, we look at who he is, we look at what he commands and what he tells us to do. And as we do that, our mind is changed and our mind is renewed and we become different and therefore things like love and faithfulness and kindness and these qualities naturally, naturally come through us as naturally as a fruit grows on a tree. It's not something where you say, right, I need to love more. Now, what are those five steps to love again? Now, what it is, is that we focus on Christ, and as we focus on Christ, and we grow in knowledge, and we grow in discernment, then that love abounds. And ultimately, that verse ends, so we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And there's our first reference to this, this conclusion. I think, again, here in Paul's thinking, and we see this in Ephesians as well, we saw it in Colossians, it, it's a repeated theme in these letters, that the Christian church, again, sees the end point, so often, being salvation. Whereas for Paul, there really was a more of a concept of the now but not yet. That concept that, that ultimately our redemption is complete, not when we believe, but our redemption is complete when we see him face to face. And that's something he's going to bring out a little while later. And then he goes on and talks about being filled with the fruit of righteousness and this concept of maturity, uh, how to get there, and the fact that they are mature and they're maturing is part of his thanksgiving and prayer. Now, when we hit verse 12, we have a, a slightly different section, and he talks about the, the, much of the suffering that has happened. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has had really uh, served to advance the gospel. So it has been known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And there's Paul, desperate to go out and take the gospel to various lands and nations and places. And God says, nope, not going to have your will. This is my will. going to lock you up. Huge frustration for Paul. But what does he do? He gets locked up with a Roman guard, key Roman guard. He ministers to them and they go and take the gospel out for him. 
And that's what was happening there. And of course, more importantly than that, we get the book of Philippians as a result as well. If, you imagine if Paul hadn't ever been imprisoned. You imagine if he, the stuff he wanted to say to the church of Philippi, he'd have been allowed by God to just go and tell them how much poorer we would be as a church as a result of that. That's God's sovereignty in action right there. And so he talks about his suffering, he talks about his imprisonment, and he, uh, and he says to them in verse 14, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, I think that sometimes in this nation we get worried about the society changing. Most of you, all of you here, we've grown up where Christianity has been a positive thing. I used to be able to, when I, when I first left school, and I used to apply for, applying for a part-time job or something like that, I could put on my resume, I could put down that I was a Christian, that I went to church, I could put a pastor as a reference, and that would universally be a good thing. We are now entering an era where people in certain jobs are having to keep that quiet so that they can get a job. The world is changing and we're worried about it. But Paul here is saying, look, because of persecution, because of imprisonment, people are emboldened to preach the gospel more. And I think it's something that as the world changes and the nation changes, we should not fear but we should say, hey, God's going to do th- things to the church through a period of less ease as we move forwards. And then he goes on and he talks in the next section about some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And in that whole section, he's basically talking about how because he's been in prison, people are like, ah, oh, brilliant, Paul's been benched. Now I can get the glory. And there are people out there, because Paul was the big noise, saying, well, maybe I can be the big noise now, because Paul's not around. And you'd expect Paul to come down on that and say how terrible that was. But Paul, and you've got to remember one of the key things he's going to be developing here is the whole issue of humility. Paul understands it's not about him, it's about God. He understands that his imprisonment has gone to, to help spread the gospel and not hinder the gospel. And so he says, look, if these guys are preaching the gospel... And they're doing it for bad motive. They want to try and make a name for themselves. As long as it's the gospel, he says, then good's being done. If people are stepping up and going out in my absence, well, then great. And it's just a great little passage. A great reminder to us that the gospel and God's work isn't about us. It's about God. You know what? Anything that I could do or you could do for God, he could do with, any, he could do with a hundred other people. It is a privilege to be part of his plans. It's an honor to be able to serve him. But what he is interested in is our hearts. Are we going to be humble and allow God to receive the glory for his work? And so... He's happy that Christ is being proclaimed. Then as we come through and we hit into sort of verse 19 and he rejoices, uh, 
He says, I rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, with the help of the Spirit of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so things will work for the good, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not, at, uh, not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. And so though he may be look, made to look bad by these false teachers, by, well, not false teachers, correction, by these... Uh, badly motived teachers. He says, he says, ultimately, this is good for me. This is for my deliverance. This is for my, my saving. This is something that, that is going to give God glory regardless of me. And we see that whole perspective. And he talks about how, um, how he will be, will, uh, how Christ will be honored through him whatever happens. And then we come to this marvelous little section that you guys are probably familiar with. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a verse that we know well that is a powerful verse in its own right. For me to live is Christ. My life is for Christ, it's in Christ, it's through Christ. What I do or accomplish for myself is irrelevant. My life is about Christ. Chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Saved by the blood of the Son. Christ's workmanship, God's workmanship, so that we might serve him. Everything about our lives is for Christ. And Paul recognizes that. And so he goes through sufferings and persecution and imprisonment and shipwreck and all sorts of things. And he's like, but this is for Christ. But because he goes through all of those things, he recognizes that for him personally, to die is gain. A Christian fearing death is a strange thing. In this life, we struggle with our frailties, our broken bodies, not functioning as they ought, more and more as we get older, no doubt. But all of us struggle with sin. We fail, we fall, we do our own things and go our own way and we let God down. And, and you know what? On that day, when we see him face to face, it, it's all going to be over. That struggle, that discomfort, that suffering, those questions... Why did this happen to me? How could you have allowed that? What about this and that? Boom. Silenced by the presence of God. Is that not a most glorious thing? Is that not something that we should look forward to? So to him personally, to die is gain. So why not? Why not die? Why is that not better for us as Christians? Well, he goes on, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So if I'm going to keep on living, I'm keeping on serving Christ. For me to live is Christ, so I'm going to keep doing this fruitful labor. Um, yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. In other words, here he is serving and ministering and in the midst of all the suffering and all the struggles, there's such joy in what God is doing through him. But yet, still death is better. And he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That is the point of the passage. If we quote, for me to live is Christ and die is gain, and we don't get to this verse, we've missed the point of the passage. That's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, yeah, we're better off dead. We are, but it's not about us. We're here to minister. We're here, we've been, we've been given his Holy Spirit to empower us for ministry. We've been given gifts for ministry. We have a purpose to our lives. And that gifting, that ministry, is always, always for other people. Always. It's not about you. Your career, it's not for you. Your gifting, it's not for you. Your money, it's not for you. Your time, it's not for you. Everything that we have is, is his for the service of others. And Paul says, that's why I know I'm going to be here still. Because I have a purpose being here, and that purpose is you. You say, but what about me? Well, how many people are there? However many people are in the church, your gifting and your ministry isn't for you. But everybody else's might be for you. You're always going to win on the numbers game here, folks. The problem is humbling ourselves enough to exercise our gifting and our ministry and live our lives for others, knowing full well that most others won't do that in response. That's the trick. That's something he'll develop a little bit further on. So he talks then about the manner of your life being worthy of the gospel, and he, he's pushing towards this whole point. You can see already he's, he's developing into his, his flow of argument here, this whole idea of ministry, of serving others, and what have you. And uh, he talks about this ministry being a sign outside the church that we are living for Christ at the end of chapter 1. Now, this is really what, what I want to come to, chapter 2. When we get to chapter 2, he sets things up. We know how much he loves them. We know his affection for them. We know how much they've accomplished, what God's doing through them. And we know that Paul is already pointing towards the importance of ministry and service. Through his own example, not uh, rejoicing in, in the uh, teachers who want to disparage him. Um, and we know from what he said that he wants to continue to serve them, we've already seen him pointing towards this point of serving others and humility. And that really comes to a head now in chapter 2. Chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, it's why I had uh, Stefano read the, those first 11 verses of chapter 2 for us this morning, for the reading. Chapter 2's first 11 verses is the theological centre of the book. This is really where Paul, just having, having kind of led up to it, built up to it, this is him laying down the theological heart behind the letter. Okay? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
If there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Crucial little intro here. Don't want to redo the sermon, but just these are things he mentions that on the one hand are true. They're what we have in Christ. But on the other hand, they're things we need to do. And they're all related to how we function together. Encouragement one to another. Loving one another. Fellowship, literally, in the spirit. Koinonia, that fellowship that we have one together. And affection and sympathy. I love that expression. It's what we call a, a hendiadis, which is, which is an expression where you have two things listed that kind of combine into one thought. At least I think that's how to understand it. So what he's saying is you want to have uh, affectionate empathy for one another. You know, I dearly love you, so I care about what's happening to you and in your life. Now, you imagine a church where there's encouragement, where there's love, where there's fellowship, where there's, where there's this affectionate empathy. You imagine that. You imagine that in a community, how different that is from the world. And he says, complete my joy. Oh, I have joy for you. I give thanks for you, chapter 1. But he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. This is the same mind that he's talking about. Now, here's that word again, mind. Think the same way is what he's saying. He says, you all need to think the same way. You need to be thinking, I need to encourage people. I need to love people. I need to fellowship with people. I need to have this affectionate empathy for people. Again, if we all did that, do you understand how radical and life-changing that would be? If everybody, if everybody in a congregation had the same mind in this regard. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, I love you, you're growing, you're flourishing, you're doing great stuff. But this is something here. I'm not saying you're bad at it, but this is what we're going to focus on. You need to be thinking of those around you and loving them in this manner. And then he goes on and says, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Notice the repetition of mind. He's emphasized twice in the same verse, you've got to all think the same way. You've got to all think the same way. He's really hammering that point in. And then he says this, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, what he's saying is, for this to happen, for us to have this mind, we need to humble ourselves and say, you know what? I'm going to encourage these people because it's not about me getting what I need, it's about me giving what they need. And if everybody's doing that, how would the church work? Wouldn't that be great? But he says, it only happens if we let go of us receiving and focus on us giving. Now, he doesn't completely say, look, you have no rights. Pe people, you know, if, you, if you're busy serving people and you forget to eat and then you faint and you pass out, that's not ideal. You know, you've got to look after yourself as well. So he says, not only your own interests, but on the interests of others. So you've got to do what you've got to do to get through life. You've got to work, you've got to do what have you. 
But within that, there is this concept of prioritizing others. And then in the next verse, he says, have this mind among yourselves. So now, in this tiny section, we have the third repetition of mind or thinking. You need to have the same mind, he says. You need to be of one mind, he says. And now he says, this is the mind you need to have. This is the way you need to think. This is it. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The model of humility is Jesus Christ. Jesus, and, and the Greek here we explained in detail when we did the passage, and you can go back and listen, but what the passage is essentially saying here is, is what he did is he was equal to God, but he didn't consider the glory of God, that equality as something that he had to cling on to. There he is, eternity past, with God the Father in glory, and he puts it all aside to come and be a baby, a human baby. No matter how much you step down, no matter how much you put aside, you're not even near to what Christ put aside for you. And it, it, it grieves me when people in this, in this nation think that following Jesus means being part of some sort of social club and life going well for you and, and everything being cool and groovy because, hey, you know, Jesus is all for you and, and all of this. That's not the model that Christ set. That, we're following him. Do we understand what follow means? Follow means taking the same path he took. And he took a path of humility. And that's our calling. Our calling is to humble ourselves, put aside things that we might want to cling on to so that we can serve God and serve others. Now, if you're the important person in the universe, if the rest of the universe spins around you, that's never going to happen. Never. It's only going to happen by you looking at Christ. What we said earlier, we look at Christ and then we change. Look at Christ, look at what he put aside, look at what he became, look where he went to the cross, look at that humility, and you say, God, I don't know if I can, I don't know how, but help me to follow you. That's our lives. We live in a world where people try to follow trajectories upwards. Be better at this. Be more accomplished here. See your stocks go up. See your career progress. Do, do all of these things that, that see progression. But, but yet we're Christians. And the model that we have is, is not one of progression, but of degression. It's one of us putting aside and putting aside and putting aside for the sake of God and for the sake of others. That's the mind that we're to have. That's the attitude that we should bring into church.
But it doesn't end there. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, that is such an important word. We know the hot little quip I always give you. When you see the word therefore, you always want to ask, what's it therefore? It's an important word. It's a linking word. But it's so crucial here. What he's saying is, is he's saying everything that's going to follow from verses 9 through 11 happens because of what happened in verses 5 through 8. Because Jesus humbled himself in that way, therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I spent a lot of time in those verses. I, I, I wish you would look back and refresh your minds with those sermons. They were some good ones, though I say it myself, because it's a powerful passage. But there's so much tied in here. Paul is alluding to a passage from Isaiah 45 that um, I might just read a little bit of it to you, um, where he says... Um, Turn to me and be saved. This is God speaking. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. Okay? Yahweh speaking. I'm God, no other God. I'm God, right? By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, capital letters, Yahweh, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him who shall come and be ashamed and all who are sensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Oh, man. I want to get lost in these verses again, but I've got to keep moving. But Isaiah is talking about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, the Lord, Yahweh. So when, we, when he's referencing here, Paul, and by the way, that leads to their glory at the end of that section. When Paul quotes that in Philippians, it's very clear that what he's saying is he's saying that uh, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We have that same word. In the Greek, it's kurios. It's the word that was used to translate into Greek the the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. What it's saying is that Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the context of Isaiah 45. What it's saying is that the, there's only one God and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess and that worship is going to go to Christ. And in this glorious passage of the deity of Christ, we see all the evidences that, that, that you can categorize. I hope you remember this. If you don't, you've got a hand to remind you. But there is something, an acronym that was uh, used helpfully in a book called Putting Jesus in His Place, which uses the hand to remind us of the five things that prove the deity of Christ. H, he receives the honor that is due to God. A, he has the attributes of God. N, Lord, he has the name of God. D, he does the deeds of God. And S, he sits on the seat of God. He has the authority of God. We see all of those just in those verse, in these few verses here. That Jesus, having humbled himself, become a man, death on a cross, this, this most you know, humiliating down spiral, in a sense. Because of that, 
God responds to that humility and the Father lifts him up and contained within this is the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That's, by the way, what we're going to do in our little five-part series at the start of the new year. And we'll talk about that more. But there's this glorying of Jesus Christ so that his name will be above every name. Every name. That Jesus left glory, put it aside, and now he's going to receive super glory. His name will be the name above all other names. He's going to end up greater than when he started. More glorified than when he started because of his humility. Now, this is an amazing thing to see and it's amazing in in redemption history, but here's the takeaway for us. Here's the takeaway for us, and this is the point that Paul is going to then develop from this theological foundation, okay? Here's the point. The point is, when you humble yourself, when you consider others more important, when you sacrifice, is there not the opportunity for people to take advantage of you? Is it not the possibility that you do what's right, but those around you don't? Is it not the possibility that you make sacrifices and everybody else is selfish? Isn't it possible that you get treated like a doormat and you're taken advantage of? And the answer is undoubtedly yes. Not only is there a possibility, there's the great likelihood that that will happen. Christ was spat on, slandered, disbelieved, taken advantage of, and that was part of his humiliation. So, when you make that commitment to be of that same mind, are people going to take advantage of you? Yes, you betcha. So why would you do it? Because God sees all things and one day he will lift you up. You get a choice, folks. It's this simple. We can do things in this life that will benefit and reward us in this life or we can do things in this life that God will bless us for in the next life. There's your choice. Want some blessings for a few decades or would you rather have your blessings for eternity? Sounds ridiculous when you put it like that but yet we're constantly drawn by our pride to feather our nest, to look after ourselves, to prioritise ourselves, to put ourselves above everybody else. Constantly. Paul says, be of this mind, all of you, the same mind. It's a great passage, isn't it? And that's our foundation, and he goes off from that point. And he talks about them being lights of the world and living as a a result of that. That basically, if if you... um, if you're going to live that way, what, what a testimony to the world. He, he mentioned that at the end of chapter 1. He develops it then more so in chapter 2. Doing all things without grumbling and questioning, being blameless and innocent in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. That's our testimony, being of this same mind. And then he talks about Epaphroditus, who's uh, the one who's, who's come to take the gift. We're going to see about the gift in chapter 4. But they have a financial gift for Paul. Epaphroditus brings it. Epaphroditus brings the gift. And then he gets sick. And, and in, in that culture, huge deal. Massive deal. Here he is, sent to bless them, uh, sent to bless Paul. He gets there. 
and he becomes someone who needs help rather than giving help. He's so sick he almost dies. And in that culture of honour and shame, then Epaphroditus would have received shame because he went to go and bless someone and ended up being a burden to them. And Paul says, no, no, no. Now you understand the theological point. We can understand that God's sovereign over this, that Epaphroditus didn't have any shame and that, in fact, God was, I was blessed through him and I was blessed, why? Because I was able to serve him and minister to him. What Paul is basically saying is, look, your honour-shame system and the way you think about things is totally wrong. Now, we don't have it to the same degree in our culture, but we have it to some degree. Look up to people on the pedestal, look down at people in the gutter. That's not Christianity. That's not how it is. We need to shed our moral superiority and start to look at people who are struggling in their lives and struggling with their sin and struggling with day-to-day -day life and we need to love them. Have that same mind. Then we get to chapter 3. The word translated at the start here, finally, is really saying there's a shift of topic here. And so in chapter 3, I'm going to move quicker, by the way, we've done the main part. But as we get to chapter 3, he starts to warn them about those who are going to come in. And so he's, he's aware, the Judaizers, those who are going to try and uh, shift the gospel, uh, are going to come into the church. He uh, lovely section where he very cleverly uses his rhetoric to put them down, to elevate the Philippian church, and to warn them about these people who will glory in the flesh. Now this glorying in the flesh, we can see how this follows the theme along, can't we? We can see how people who are saying, look, I'm great because I'm a Jew and you need to become circumcised and become a Jew and then you can be a Christian. They're glorying in the flesh, they're glorying in the temporary. And Paul is saying, this is, we, we don't live according to this, this way of thinking anymore. Say mind, remember. We don't, we don't think this way, we don't function this way. And the reason why we don't is the very heart of the gospel. He brags about how in the flesh he's probably greater than they are. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, a righteous under the law, and all of this. And then he uses quite strong language. He essentially says in the Greek a word that at mildest would be translated as the English word crap. Uh, most Bible versions make it more delicate and use the word rubbish or garbage, or something along those lines. The King James quaintly says, dung. And he, he basically said, which probably is closer to the truth of what Paul's trying to communicate here. And, and, and some have argued for a stronger word here, but I'll leave that to your imagination. But his point is this. Everything that you accomplish in the flesh, it's rubbish. It's worthless. It's pointless. It's fit for flushing. That's all it's good for. If we're of the same mind, then what we're doing is we're, we're not glorying in these things, we're setting aside these things for the sake of God and the sake of others. Because that's the heart of our faith, that's where our righteousness comes from. That's what Paul concludes. He says that we have a righteousness that doesn't come from doing the right thing, or living the right way, or being the right person. Our righteousness comes from faith. Nothing that we did earned our salvation. It's a gift from God. And if it's a gift from God, 
then everything that we have is a gift from God. This idea of transferring our, our, our salvation and our faith into the things of the flesh is completely antithetical to the entire gospel. And so he says, the righteousness of my own that comes not from the law, but that comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of resurrection, and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen, can you see in the linking there again how it's knowing him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that in the context of Ephesians is the Holy Spirit within us, that the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead, and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's saying, I want to know Jesus better. I want to know the power that he's placed within me better. So that, what? So that I can live a happy life and be really successful. So that I can share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. You see how that section in chapter 2 is the theological basis and the heart of the book? Everything else is coming from that place. We've got to have that same mind. We've got to have that same mind of humility, that mind of Christ. Unless we got disheartened at that point, he says, I'm not already perfect, which is good to know. But he talks about now in the latter part of chapter 3, pressing on, leaving what's behind, moving forwards. Whatever failures you've had, whatever problems you've had, leave it behind. Moving forwards. Moving forwards to what? To be more Christ-like. Moving forwards to the rewards that come from humility and humble living. Notice in verse uh, 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Notice the repetition of thinking here. He's talking, we've got to all think the same way. If you're mature in, in your faith, you're thinking this way. If people aren't, then we want them to keep growing so they do think this way. This is how we're supposed to function. He talks in the last paragraph there about imitating him and living as he is. And then there are those who, and this is where he concludes chapter, chapter 3, is this contained section. He concludes his thoughts, goes back to these false teachers who their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So these people have bad doctrine, false teaching, false gospel, teaching that people are saved by works and who they are and what they do in the flesh. And he says, that bad doctrine gives you bad practice. They glory in their belly. They're not in it for others, they're in it for themselves. And their minds are set on earthly things. You see that word again? Minds. Their minds are on their belly. The earth, the things of the earth, the things they can gather, the things they can do, the things they can accomplish. Their mind is on the things of this earth and it revolves around them. We don't want that mind. We want the same mind as Christ. And we all want to have that same mind. See how it all develops. I love doing these little these, these overviews. We see how it all develops so smoothly and nicely. Then we come to chapter 4. I think chapter 4, there are many reasons he wrote Philippians, by the way. He had to encourage them to tell him he loved them. He's going to talk about the gift and the practicalities at the end of this chapter. And, and obviously warn them about the false teachers. 
But really, that theological key of humility, of having the same mind, is leading to this one practical point. And some people miss it. They don't see the flow and they miss it. And they think that these verses are just an aside. They're not an aside. This is probably one of the predominant reasons of him writing the book. He talks here about two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. And he says, I urge them. Interesting, he repeats the word urge twice. He says, I'm urging you, Euodia, and I'm urging you, Syntyche. What are you going to do? Agree in the Lord. Now, these two ladies, they didn't have a fight over theology. If one of them said, I believe this about God, and the other said, no, I believe that about God, Paul would have been wading in straight away with, with his big boots and said, no, this person's right and this person's wrong. You want evidence of that? Read Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Romans. You read any of Paul's letters, and when someone's wrong theologically, Paul puts them right. Simple as that. So here we have a conflict that is a conflict that doesn't revolve around theology, but is personal interaction. And what does he say to them? He says, agree in the Lord. And interestingly enough, it's the same Greek word. They need to think the same way. He says, your problem, Euodia and Syntyche, and notice he's not refereeing here. He's not saying, look, Euodia's got a point here and Syntyche's got a point here. He's not doing that. He says, here's your problem, ladies. You're not thinking the same way. He's not telling them, look, go, go aside separately, thrash it out in a room for half an hour, and come to an agreement for me. He's, he's not dealing with whatever the problem, he doesn't address what the problem is. Because the problem isn't the problem. The problem is, is they don't have the mind of Christ. The problem is they're not thinking the same way. The problem is, is that Euodia doesn't recognize that Syntyche is more important than her. And Syntyche doesn't recognize that Euodia is more important than her. And they're not prepared to allow God to be God. They're not prepared to do what's right and to trust God if they humble themselves to lift them up. And so there's conflict. And Paul says, here's your solution. I don't even know what it's about. I'm not going to address what it's about. Here's the solution. Have the mind of Christ. Think the same way. Agree in the Lord. That's what he's talking about in the context of Ephesians. Uh, Philippians, rather. And he asks uh, the true companion, uh, someone there at the church, to help and come alongside. And he, he lifts the women up. He says they've ministered in the gospel with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then he goes on to these things, these verses that we're very familiar with, but we don't see it in light of Euodia and Syntyche, and we need to. Rejoice in the Lord always, I say again, rejoice. So rejoicing is, you know, rejoicing in the Lord and what we have in the Lord, that's our gateway to having the same mind at the point of conflict. We don't want to worry about what we're going to lose. We don't want to worry about what's going to happen to us. We want to rejoice in what God has given us. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everybody. There, again, that's how they're going to deal with their conflict. They're going to have a reasonableness and a gentleness that, that when they apply it to each other will mean that the situation is no longer a situation. The, 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 the phrase here, the Lord is at hand, because the Lord is at hand, and, and look at how chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 comes into play here. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. This is in the context of Euodia and Syntyche. He's saying, look, God's at hand. God's there, right? Euodia's like, but if I, if I give in, Syntyche will do this. And Syntyche's here, yeah, but if I give in, Euodia will be like that. 
There are valid concerns. But God's at hand. So don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. But offer up your concerns, your prayers, your supplications to God and give thanksgiving to him. That's your solution. But this might happen to me. Yeah, it might. So pray to God it doesn't and trust him if it does. That's your solution. Having the same mind. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When there is conflict, there is a lack of peace. Not just between people, but a lack of peace in the sense of we're worried. We need to trust God. He's at hand. Give it over to him in prayer and let him be God, which we're not. Just a little memo, reminder for you. And then we can have peace that he will do what is right. Maybe not this week, maybe not this year, maybe not this lifetime, but the principle has been clear. Those who humble themselves, he lifts up. And then he says, finally, brothers, and this is the finally in the section on Euodia and Syntyche, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This verse is wrenched from its context normally. The point is, Euodia, what's good about Syntyche? Think about it, focus on it. Syntyche, what do you like about Euodia? Think about it and focus on those things. That's the solution here. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace be with you. And that's where he talked about the example he had in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 1, and the outworking of having the same mind can be seen often in Paul's own life, and that's what he reminded them of. And that was the point of the letter, to get this principle of humility in and to see it work out in practice. And that's why those verses in chapter 4 are so crucial, just giving us little hooks, showing us what this looks like in practice for each of us. And finally, we have this last section, which we've dealt with just last week, where he thanks them for the gift that they've received, and he talks about his uh, reliance on God, uh, in the midst of all things. And again, here is a man who's humbled himself. He had the opportunity to be prosperous, to be successful, and he gave it up for Christ. He gave it up for Christ. Pharisee's life was a good life. Now he's getting stoned and shipwrecked and fleeing cities in baskets, and he's having a rough time, and now he's in prison. But he does it all, and he receives now receiving gifts to get by but he knows that God will supply his needs. Why? Because he's here to serve for ministry. Needs is not Paul having a comfortable bed, a second home, lots of vacations. Needs here is what he needs, and we, we spoke about the two different words for needs here last week, if you want to go back to that. But what he needs, what he requires, is he needs the things that he needs to do the ministry that God's called him to do. Our problem is that we want a whole bunch of things that we don't need to serve God. And what it does is it exposes our hearts that we're still people living for ourselves. That's not the mind to have. The one lesson above all else that we take away from the book of Philippians is this. 
that we're to have the mind of Christ. And that mind is seen in how we treat each other as a community, as believers. So as we leave Philippians behind, I urge us all, make it your business to be here. You don't come to church just to hear a sermon. You come to church because you're a minister. I equip you for ministry. You do ministry. God has gifted each of you individually, and if you're going to minister that gift to other people, you need to be here to do it. Minister to one another. Serve one another. Make sacrifices so you can be here, so that you can minister. Why? Because the other people here are more important than you are. Let's serve God together. Let's humble ourselves. Take those risks and trust God to lift us up for our humble acts of service one to another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you dearly for this glorious book. May we, uh, may we take these lessons, may we remember them, may that we apply them to our lives. Now and for the remainder of the days you give us. Amen.